Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time, time of worship, time of prayer and fellowship with one another. We ask now that you would just uh, use me, Lord, to glorify your Son, Jesus, and that he would get the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so I've called this message The Contrasts of Christmas. Um, now, let me just out myself a little bit on this. I am one of those slightly, and I do love Christmas. Okay, I am slightly annoying about it, you can ask Sarah. I love the build-up to Christmas. I love it when all the coffee shops get their Christmas drinks in and the food starts appearing all over the place, stolen things and all sorts of lovely things that you've never heard of. It's the only month of the year where it is acceptable to get up and immediately eat chocolate. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's no other time you could get away with that, is there? But we do that in December. I love songs, the Christmas songs, not only the carols, but I do actually quite like some of the, the other Christmas songs. <laughs> I've, I've never actually roasted a chestnut on an open fire. I keep meaning to, but until you've heard it being sung about, it's not really Christmas, is it? And some of us, who you probably won't admit it, but is it really Christmas unless you've heard Mariah tell you what she does in fact want for Christmas? (laughs) It's not really the holiday season, is it? Christmas movies, The Snowman, that's one of my childhood movies, so unless you've heard Alid Jones very high-pitched banging out, walking in the air, that that is part of British Christmas. Uh, I love lights, I love trees... Christmas movies. Who's watched Elf this year already? Yeah, yeah. yeah I've done that. Who's watched Die Hard? <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. That is a Christmas movie. They did a poll recently on BuzzFeed. Is it a Christmas movie? Um, and it, it was a Christmas movie. So everyone, you can agree on that. However, all of these, all of these kind of things. They are on the periphery, you know, you know what I mean. For us as Christians, they're just kind of decorative trimmings that some people love, some people absolutely hate. I happen to love them. But I will say that I do seem to love Christmas more and more every year. I do seem to like And that really is, there is, I think about that, the reason is every year you grow in the Lord. You know, you spend time with the Lord, we come, you know, a year of church and sitting under the word of God and and all these sorts of things. Even if it's a tiny bit, or even if you feel like you haven't grown, you've gone backwards, it's a time when you can come back to the Lord. And it's always more meaningful. And the more you learn about Christ, the more meaningful it gets every single year. And this is why one thing I do love, particularly, is carols. And I I don't, not so much for the musical tunes, I I do like them because they just remind me of childhood in, in many ways. But as I learn more and more about the theology, like we looked at on Sunday, they're some of the kind of most beautiful songs that we actually have in the church. They're just so rich in their theology. Um, And when you are a Christian, it's different than just singing songs as a cultural kind of thing that you do at the holidays. When you're a Christian and you're singing about your Saviour, these things become more real to you. 
when they have more meaning. And, it, and that changes, really changes everything for Christmas. Uh, that's why I love Christmas, and hopefully I'll continue to love it, although it has been quite stressful this year with two kids in the run-up to it, but it's, it's still good. So this is our first contrast. Okay, Christmas is a time of stress for some people. I've had just a very stressful week. Things like the internet goes when you're trying to work. You had a day planned, put aside to study for this sermon, and Toby got conjunctivitis. He couldn't go to nursery, so I had to look after him all day. Uh, you know, things like that. And then the internet, it's just things where you're just like, Ugh. but, you know, they really are first world problems. And for a lot of people, they actually hate Christmas. You know, a lot of people like we, we, we joke about it, but if you if you talk to psychiatrists, they tell you that things like depression and seasonal disorder, these sorts of things, they peak around depression December and January because it's just that time of year. The stress just gets too much, and it, it's it's not a good time. On the other side, in amongst all of this kind of stress and hustle and bustle, us as Christians, we're trying to make the night slightly sacred. It's a time when we're looking towards the birth of Christ, and it's a holy night. In, in some respects, and it always reminds me of, of you know, the, that chorus of that carol, one of my favourite carols, where it says, fall on your knees and hear the angels' voices, you know, O night divine. You know, this, this is it. And, and that is, you know, when we think about what we're celebrating, falling on our knees is an adequate response, and that's what we want to do. It's very hard to do in amongst the kind of secular trappings that we have of Christmas. So this is the first contrast that I want to point out. For us as Christians, Christmas... I think it's probably one of the most theologically rich uh, holidays. Oh yeah, well yeah, holidays that we could celebrate. And this is historically what I'm talking about. We are dealing with some of the most profound and controversial issues that the church has ever wrestled with. And we're going to talk a little bit. Doug mentioned it a little bit on Sunday. I want to add a little bit more to what he said. Uh, let's go to our text for today, though, which is Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. I'll read it to you. It says, For a child, this is a famous kind of Christmas card verse, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. For our second contrast, let's look at that first part of that first verse. A child will be born and a son will be given. And within these two statements we have the two natures of the incarnation given to us here. The child was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The son was given because the son eternally existed as the second person of the Trinity. They call this the eternal divine sonship. And this is where the controversy begins. The incarnation probably presents us with the biggest controversy of all, or the biggest contrast, let's put it like that, that's a better way to put it. Because in Jesus and in the Gospels we have the Divine One, the one who turned water into wine, the one who walked on water, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, but at the same time the one who was tired, the one who wept at Lazarus, the one who was hungry and thirsted, and the one who ultimately bled and died a vicious and shameful death under the, on a Roman cross. These contrasts are probably the biggest contrasts we have. Jesus truly is the God-man. But the way that these divine and human natures come together 
was where the controversy started. Doug talked about the Council of Nicaea on Sunday with, when he was talking about redeeming Santa Claus and St. Nicholas, this character who was at that council. There was a man named Arius. This was the theological controversy of the 4th fourth, fourth century. Arius was preaching. He denied the Son is given part. He denied the eternal sonship of Christ. And he said that Jesus only became the Son of God when God created him and adopted him. And there was another man called Athanasius, and he was the, the hero of the story, he's the defender of orthodoxy, and he was the one opposing Arius at this council. Constantine organised this council to deal with these theological issues. And the Christmas connection with this is, Doug mentioned that, that a man named St Nicholas of Myra was at this council. He was the bishop, bishop of Myra in Turkey. Um, and he was a theological hero as well in some respects. He was very zealous, perhaps too zealous, as I'll tell you in a minute, for the truth. And it's recorded at one point in this council when Arius was kind of waxing eloquently about his, you know, put it, presenting his arguments and all the bishops were sitting there listening very politely and he broke into song about denying the, the true nature of Christ. And Jolly had sent Nick, at this point he lost his cool. And he got up out of his chair, which was not done in the council he wandered across and he slapped him across the face. And I just find that hilarious. Um, not in a good way, we're not advocating that sort of behaviour. But, and obviously he got removed from the council, stripped of his bishop and put in jail for the, for the proceedings of that. Uh, he did in fact repent and he was, you know, was sorry for what he did and he, he, he got restored to ministry after that. But that, that was Saint Nick. So not only is he looking to see whether you're naughty or nice, he's looking to see whether you are theologically orthodox too. <laughs> and if you're not, well, that's what's going to happen. But really, the, the Council of Nicaea and, and all the preceding, proceedings after it, obviously at Nicaea they condemned Arius, they, they confirmed what we would call orthodoxy, that the eternal sonship of Christ existed before the Incarnation. The whole debate centred around two words. Okay, and this is one word, I'll pronounce it, I'm going to butcher the Greek pronunciation, but for the sake of it, it's homoousios. Okay, that's all one word, but it's coming from two separate words, homo and ousios. And that means of the same substance. So the argument was Jesus is of the same substance as the Father, which is what we find in Scripture. And then Arius's view, the word was homoousios. Okay, so very, all, the only difference, huge long word, the only difference is one I, the, one iota, okay, and that means of a similar substance, okay, but similar is not good enough when we're talking about the nature of Christ, okay, so, and that's where the, the heresy started. And this is where we get the expression, if you've heard it, not one iota of difference, okay, so it doesn't matter one iota, it's an, it's an old expression, but you might hear it a lot. That's where this goes back to, this, this theological controversy, because this one little Greek letter changed the meaning to say whether Christ was eternally divine or whether he was not. Um, and that's, that's what it was. Now, the council condemned, obviously, and the, the view of Arius and came up with the Nicene Creed. I love this creed. Let me read it to you. It says, We believe, you might recognise it from the song that we sometimes sing, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. And you might, if some of you know your carols very well, the middle part of that creed, 
He knows, O come all ye faithful. Everyone's kind of got, everyone now, I'm not going to sing it. Um, but you know, you know the carol. The second verse of that carol reads this. It says, True God of true God, light from light eternal. Lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb, son of the father, begotten, not created. It's pretty much, almost word for word, and ex- uh, just a quote from the Nicene Creed in, in that carol. That's exactly where he's drawing from. And then it says, O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Okay, this, is the nice, this is the theology of the Nicene Creed. It's had such a long reach in history because it's such a good creed. And really, this is what we want to do in this season. We do want to come and adore him for everything that that means. We don't just learn about him, we actually worship him. We, fo- we follow him. The God who became flesh. This, this is probably the greatest mystery in the whole Bible. You see, when you think about those tiny little... Who, everyone loves baby hands. You see little chubby baby hands. Or if you've seen one of these 3D scans, we had them like, with, with both our, our boys, when you can see their little hands in the womb. And when, when you think about Mary with Jesus, the incarnate Christ in her hand, those little hands that were being formed in her womb, they were being formed in order that one day a Roman spike would be nailed through them into a cross. Okay? Jesus was literally born to die, okay, like a lamb to the slaughter, <laughs> the express, where the expression kind of comes from. But such is what we call the miracle of the manger. This is it. Isaiah, that verse we read, he continues, his name is wonderful. These things are quite literally wonderful. He's a counsellor, the mighty God. This is speaking of the controversy we just talked about. These names of divinity applied to Christ. Eternal Father, that that literally reads Father of Eternity. And the Prince of Peace. This is the contrast and the miracle of the manger. C.S. Lewis said it best in his eloquent way that he always does. He says, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole whole world itself. Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world itself. And that's, that's Lewis, I think that's absolutely right. Let me tell you a story to really illustrate this contrast. Now, I, I, I have told this story a couple of times over the years, but I love it, and it is a Christmas story of sorts. So let me take you back to 1968, Christmas Eve, 1968. And this was the day that the Apollo 8 space mission made its circle round what they called the dark side of the moon. So it was the first ever manned mission, that means to go slingshot kind of round the moon and back to Earth. And there's a very famous event that happened, I'm sure some of you know it. As this spacecraft orbited the moon, these crew, there's like three or four astronauts that they had on board, they became the first people to ever view Earth from this position. Up until this point, only God had been privileged to see the Earth from this position, if you can say that. And as they came back, they slingshotted around the back of the moon and they saw what they call the Earth rise. So they had the horizon of the moon in front of them and then they saw that, what they call the blue marble, the beautiful kind of blue marble of the globe, just suspended in black space with nothing but a million stars surrounding it. You can imagine the kind of awe-inspiring moment of that scene. Uh, it's you can see the photos of Earthrise. Just type that into Google. It's a very famous photo that the astronauts took. Um, you can actually watch the whole video still, I believe. Now, what they did at this moment, not exactly at this moment, but on, on this trip, rather than, you know, they were thinking, what words could we use to describe this amazing moment? Okay? And nothing they could come up with, nothing that man could come up with would be fitting for such a moment as something like this. All that they did 
is they opened the Bible and they read from Genesis chapter 1. And they read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the NASA, uh, Apollo 8, as, as they went through this whole orbit, the astronauts, all three of them, they read the entire chapter. And you can go on the NASA archives. I did this um, for something else I was looking at. And you can find the actual NASA transcripts from the flight. They have it every, every single day, every second, and it's not indexed very well. So I read pages of this before I found the right, the right day and moment where they actually read this. And you can find them, and it starts off like this. So Bill Anders, one of the, one of the um, astronauts, he says, he says, We are now approaching lunar sunrise, and for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send you. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And they passed it around, and they went through the whole chapter. And then, to end, they said this now famous phrase, And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless you all all of you, on the good earth. Now you see, what was special about this is that this message, this whole reading, with the video to go with it, was broadcast down to earth on Christmas Eve. And it was the most watched television event in history at that point. Okay? And they were reading Genesis chapter 1 and giving glory to God about the Creator. I think God chose those astronauts just for that time, for such a time as this. He had them there prepared. Now, I like the providential irony that I see in this timing of this event, because this was the space race. You know, there was a, it was always a race between to be the first person to do something in space, and it just so happened they did this on Christmas Eve. As millions of people around the world were beginning to wake up and prepare for that day, for that celebration, that focuses generally on the baby of Christ, the Christ, the helpless, the helpless baby, you know, the infant that was dependent on its mother for its entire life. God broadcast this around the globe as if almost to say, to remind them who it was they were celebrating at this time. You see, that babe in the manger that everyone would be celebrating on Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day, he was the one who actually spoke these heavens into existence. This globe that you're looking at, this vast universe that you're looking at from behind the moon, he was the one who spoke and it was. He was the one who said, let there be light, and light appeared. It says in the scripture that this child that they're celebrating is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he is the one who is upholding all things by the word of his power. This baby in the manger is the God who thundered on Mount Sinai. Okay? It's the one who sits on the throne in heaven, surrounded by a multitude of heavenly hosts, with creatures, the living creatures and the angels singing to him day and night, Holy, holy, holy are you, O God. This one that we're seeing now is the one who parted the Red Sea. He's the one who brought down the rules of Jericho. He's the one that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the one that opened up the ground, literally, to swallow the rebellious sons of Korah. This is the King of Glory. This is the Lord Almighty, the Sovereign God, that is now freshly born in a stable on a cold winter's night in Bethlehem and is now totally reliant upon its mother for life. That is the biggest contrast. I mean, can you get a, a bigger contrast between the two events as that? I don't really think you can. And this is why we, we would declare with Paul, 1 Timothy 3.16, by common confession... 
Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery. He who was revealed in the flesh, incarnation, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Because that is the contrast of Christmas for me. And that whole event is really what we fill our hearts with at Christmas time. Because when we look at Christ, we see a child is born, but it was also a son that was given, and the son existed eternally, and he had the glory of the Father. He is God. He is divine, and we need to understand that. He also goes on in Isaiah, back in Isaiah 9-6, it calls him the Prince of Peace. Okay, the Prince of Peace. Now what does this really mean? You'll notice the theme of peace come up a lot in these passages. Uh, in verse 7 there as well, and in, in the Luke passages, peace. It's a Christmas thing people associate with Christmas time. Now if you go back to 1969, the week before Christmas, John Lennon and Yoko, they had a peace campaign. They ran a peace campaign at that time. And it happened in many cities across America. It was basically a billboard campaign, that's kind of what they had. And they had lots of people and peace activists with billboards. And on the billboards it read, War is over, if you want it, happy Christmas from John and Yoko. Now obviously they, they were protesting against the Vietnam War, generally at this time, it was the 60s. Um, but for them, peace simply really meant cessation of hostility. Okay, st- stopping the war, basically, stopping people dying. Now, as good as that is, that sort of peace is only ever temporary. History proves that. Okay, peace happens for a while, there's always another war, there's always another hostility, there just is. Real peace must be affected by changing the hearts of people involved. We talked about this on Sunday, didn't we? This is what the prophets of old, the Hebrew prophets, meant when they talked about peace. You see, they're, they're translating the Hebrew word shalom. Hebrew word shalom... <coughs> doesn't just mean, it can mean stopping the war, but it speaks more of what we would call completeness or wholeness. And when applied to people, peace between people, it speaks of wholeness in your character. And in the Jewish context, it refers to peace with God through a covenant relationship. The whole of the Bible is based upon covenants, and all, everything we have comes to us through covenants, the covenant relationship of God. Isaiah 52, how lovely are the mountains of the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Ezekiel 37, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it will be an everlasting covenant. This is the new covenant that's being talked about here in the Old Testament. Colossians 1.20 where it says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Okay, and we know this is the, you know, the, the, new, the new covenant that we share. We get our spiritual blessings from that covenant. His blood was poured out for the remission of sins. It's peace with God through the new covenant. And when this new covenant is fully implemented, and I say that to say that there are still parts of the new covenant that we are waiting a f- future fulfilment, it will ultimately include a cessation of hostilities, but that's not its primary purpose. That comes as a secondary result from people being in right relationship with God. Jesus really does bring peace in the fullest sense to people's persons and character. Christmas Eve, 1914. Another one of these events in history. I've probably shared this with you too. I just love it, the story of it. 1914, the Great War. Okay, this is World War I. Waging on the Western Front... France and all these places. One of the deadliest conflicts in human history, over 16 million people lost their lives. 
And yet there was what is referred to as the Christmas miracle. Uh, World War I was trench warfare. These trenches were dug and they were there for pretty much the entirety of the war. They were brutal, brutal places. Soldiers at this time, knee-deep in cold, muddy water, feet rotting, rats trying to eat the remaining rations, climbing over bodies, cuddling under dead bodies for warmth. In between, between the Germans and the British and the French, you had what's called no-man's land, and this was well, self-explanatory. You go in no-man's land, you generally die. That was pretty much what it was. December, the, the trench warfare was bitter, and it war- raged right up until December 24th. So this is Christmas time again, Christmas Eve, 1914. During the day, the sound of shelling stopped, and there was a silence for a period. And this is all from first-hand accounts from the soldiers. And then all of a sudden, the Germans started singing Silent Night. And obviously this is an unusual thing to hear in the trenches. And the Allies, not wanting to be outdone, they responded by singing the first Noel. And then both sides together sang, O come, all ye faithful. And this was a spontaneous movement of peace that was observed by the troops as they celebrated together the Saviour's birth, even if it was from inside their trenches. But then it got even more unbelievable when the German troops came up from over the trench with white flags into no man's land and the British and the French got up to meet them and they went up to them, their guns were down, they shook hands, they exchanged gifts, they had Christmas services in no man's land, they held services as they buried their dead, they played football and for that one moment you had that little glimpse of humanity coming through in the midst of the worst war probably still the worst war that the world except for World War Two, obviously but same kind of thing has ever had now the authorities the lead, you know, they were not happy about this truce they did not authorise it and they did not want it and they took great pains to make sure that it never ever ever happened again at pain of death you do not fraternise with the enemy but what amazes me when I think about this for one night even just for those few hours when the focus of people's hearts and the words of their lips turned towards the Saviour, there was peace. And I just find that just a microcosm of just a little bit of what the Gospel can do on a global scale if we had the Gospel preached like that. Only Jesus can bring peace. Let's read Isaiah 9, verse 7. There will be no end to increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Now we're talking about. Now, this is. Most people like verse 6 for Christmas. No one likes verse 7 for Christmas because we get specific here. We're now talking about a government. Governments imply politics, don't they? Generally, laws, order. And you talk about this throne of David. There's a very specific theology attached now to the message of Christmas. And it's this passage here that forms the background to the passage that we find in the Lucan infancy narratives. The Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, the traditional Christmas stories. So if you turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 33... We'll read them and you'll see they're basically word, not word for word, but the same words. It's basically the same as Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 there. 
Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 33 says this. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is one of those passages, the throne of David and the house of Jacob. Now, the house of Jacob, that's Israel. Okay? No scholar would disagree with that. That is Israel. But if he's ruling over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end, it means the house of Jacob has no end. Now, that's, this is a big theological controversy today. I'm not going to go into it too much now, but this speaks of the future part of what we would call the gospel of the kingdom. This is the new covenant these elements, the throne of David comes from the Davidic covenant. Okay? The best way, let me just say, the best way to understand the Bible, if you want to get a, a big picture overview of the Bible, understand the covenants. Start with the Abrahamic covenant, that is the foundation for every other covenant that you get in Scripture. Work your way through to the Davidic covenant. This is what we have, the throne of David, a specific heir that was promised to the line of David that would be an eternal heir, obviously culminating through David, Solomon, and into the Messiah, Messiah Jesus, as this promise still here reiterates. And this shows you that these promises are still active and live because they're being promised. All through Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll have reference to the oath that he swore to the forefathers, the covenant that he swore to Abraham, the throne of David. This is all, this is very, very Jewish language here, referring and drawing to their attention these covenants. Then you have the new covenant that we're more familiar with because it's in the New Testament, but it was first in the Old Testament. Okay, Jeremiah is where it comes from, and Ezekiel, I read, read a bit of it to you earlier. The covenant of peace, that's the new covenant. And then you have the Mosaic Covenant. Understand how that fits in. That was the only one that was a temporary covenant. When you understand all of these covenants, you'll have a big picture understanding of how the Bible fits in and how it plays out. So that's a really good way to study the Bible. There's only four or five of these covenants. But within these elements, you'll have the lineage of Messiah, you'll have the land of Israel, you'll have the throne of David, and you'll have all these things played out. And all of these things, contrary to what a lot of scholars will tell you, all of these things are reiterated in the New Testament quite a few times. The house of Jacob. Now, one of the issues is we've so divorced the gospel from the phrase gospel of the kingdom, like you find in the New Testament, we've taken it out of its historical Jewish context that we lose a lot of it. Okay. Because immediately when you, I say the term, we lose the gospel, and people think... So how do you get saved if you don't know the gospel? And this is exactly our problem. We've made the gospel simply mean you get saved and then one day maybe you'll, one day you'll, you'll go to heaven when you die. Now, I'm not demeaning that truth. Obviously that is true in some respects, but it is so much more than that. Okay, the gospel of the kingdom includes not just your salvation, your redemption, the atonement and justification and all these great truths that we've fought for over the years and the reformers and all this stuff, but it goes right back to these covenants. The gospel of the kingdom includes a king who will sit on a throne and who will rule in a geographic location with a land. You can't escape these, these scriptures. The Apostle Paul hammers them home in Romans 9, 10 and 11. They're all through the New Testament. They're all through the, the promises of the birth of Messiah here. Let me put it bluntly. If your gospel does not culminate with a Jewish man ruling over the earth 
from Jerusalem, it's not the complete gospel proclaimed in the New Testament. Okay, and I, I say that bluntly because that's a blunt statement that a lot of people would take issue with that immediately. If your gospel does not culminate with a Jewish man, the Messiah I'm talking about there, the God-man, ruling over the earth from Jerusalem on the throne of David, it is not the gospel of the king- kingdom proclaimed in the New Testament. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 2 and we'll read a little bit more about this. I think we read a, piece of, a bit of this on Sunday. Let's just read a little bit more. I'll read it. Verse 2, chapter 2. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war this is our third contrast the contrast of Jerusalem you see it says the law goes forth from Jerusalem at some point in history everything comes back to Jerusalem Okay, you could say everything started (laughs) really in Jerusalem or in Israel at least and in Jerusalem It's where so many things happened in our history and in the history of the world. At some point, everything goes back to Jerusalem. If you've been following the news, look at all the fuss that's happened over the Trump recently, declaring that Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel. Now, you might think that's groundbreaking. It's really not groundbreaking. The American Congress voted for that in 1995. 20 years, it was Clinton who put that into order. Trump's the only one who's actually followed through on his campaign promises to move that. Israel has always known Jerusalem as its capital. That's where the Knesset is. That's where the you know it's functionally. The only reason it's not accepted is because of well bias, really, to do it, political correctness, and a a number of other things. We know that's where the throne of David was. That's where King David ruled. From the Bible, there's no there's no question really about these issues. You can argue it politically back and forth. It's a spiritual issue because of these things that we're looking at right here, because of the promise of the king who will one day rule from Jerusalem. So this is the third, contra- third contrast, the contrast of Jerusalem. You see now, all the nations want to destroy the Jewish presence in the land. You know, Trump says this, and they've had two or three UN meetings representing every nation in the world, everyone trying to get that thing, get that undone, what he said. It's not happening. Arguing that there's no Jewish connection, no Jewish connection to Jerusalem. Okay? That it, they are the motions being put forward. And every nation is voting that they're right. Okay, they're trying to erase history. And to understand this, I mean, it's so illogical, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's so against what history teaches, it, it's, you, it's shocking that they can actually do it. But the reason it happens is because it's a spiritual issue at heart, because it concerns the covenant of God. These are the things. Now, one day, when the new covenant is brought to fruition... The nations won't be just wanting to take away Jewish presence. It'll happen right here that we just read. The nations will say, let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the God of Jacob, that we may learn from him, that he may teach us his ways. The law will go forth from Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. 
like it says in the next verse, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations. One day the nations will be streaming up to seek the wisdom and counsel of the king who rules from Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people say that you don't take these passages literally. They mean something else. I find this funny because we tell the Jews that they need to take Isaiah 53 literally, which teaches about their Messiah, but then we get to 55 and chapter 60 and all of a sudden that doesn't mean what it says it means. This is no way to interpret the Bible. The passages are very clear. And if you understand the covenants, this is where it all stems from. These are just explanations of the covenant. All the nations will stream up to learn the ways of Messiah. That is the history of, and the future history of Jerusalem. Let's look at our final contrast now. The songs of the redeemed and the songs of the damned. Let's go back to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Uh, Again, famous Christmas passage there, Luke chapter 2. Now, um, there's a a T.S. Eliot, the playwriter, he wrote a a play called Murder in the Cathedral, if anyone's familiar with that play. Um, But in this play, the archbishop, before he's murdered in the cathedral, giving it away now, ruined it, Um, but before he does that, he delivers a Christmas sermon, and it's Christmas Day, the year is 1170, and I think because of the way he wrote this, you actually get the whole sermon in the play, and it's actually actually a good sermon in some respects. And he uses this this exact verse that I just read, Luke chapter 2, 13 and 14. And in this sermon, this, this archbishop, he says, when we take Mass, obviously he's using this high Anglican, so Christ Mass, Christmas, it was the Mass of Christmas. Let's just substitute that for communion. Um, same the Eucharist, this is, this is what he's talking about. He says when you do that, you are celebrating at once both the birth and the death of the Saviour, because he was the, what, the child that was born to die, because he was born to die and save us from our sins. That's you know, the main purpose of his existence, really. And in this sermon, the Archbishop proclaims that peace comes through the covenant. We've talked about that already. This is what the death was for. And we now have hope that all men may live because of the death of that one child. And this is another one of those contrasts. He comments that it's no surprise that on Boxing Day, the church celebrates what's called St. Stephen's Day. And this is true. This is in the, in the calendar of the church. Boxing Day, you celebrate the birth of Christ... Uh, Christmas Day, sorry, Boxing Day, you celebrate St. Stephen, the first martyr, Book of Acts, Stephen who was killed. Now you might think, what's the connection there? That seems very odd, to suddenly jump from the birth of Christ to the first martyr. There's a real point for why they do this, and this archbishop in in T.S. Eliot's play, he brings this out. He says, Christmas speaks of entering the family of God, okay, because you enter in, it's what it says in Hebrews, isn't it? You enter into the new covenant by way you know, through his veil, that is the flesh, and we enter into the new covenant, we become adopted and we become children of God. On St. Stephen's Day, you're looking and dealing with people who have died and have gone into the presence of God, and you are looking forward to that final family reunion. And this is a little foretaste of what communion is supposed to be. It's a foretaste of the banquet that we will all be invited to in heaven. 
This is one of the things we're celebrating. They call it the, you know, the banquet of the Lord, don't they? The, the, feast, the feast of the kingdom. And this is tied in with the hope of Christmas. And they would say, you can't come into the family of God without that glorious hope of the anticipation that all those who have gone before, you will one day be in their family too, in the presence of the King. That's the song of the redeemed. And for me, that is the message. On earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. We have that wonderful message that we can do that. Let me tell you a quick story to illustrate the song of the damned. Christmas Day, 1989. This is not a story, this is a real event. The Romanian dictator, Nicolae Ceausescu, and his wife, Elena, they were arrested, tried, and sentenced to death on Christmas Day in 1989, as the, the, kind of the Soviet blocs fell and the revolution took place in, in different places. Um, Ceausescu was a communist dictator. He was executed about five minutes after the trial. Now, history will record that it was a kind of a kangaroo court, really. It was a mock trial, but they'll also testify that it was a necessary trial. Um, it's a com- kind of complex history involved with it. The point I want to make, it's not so much about the, the event of the politics, but as he was sentenced to death, him and his wife, for so you know, he was a brutal dictator in many in many respects, doing many of the things that the communists did, and he hated Christianity, he expunged it, he killed a lot of priests and all these sorts of things, which was quite commonplace. As he was being led out to the execution spot, it's recorded that Elena, his wife, she just simply screamed expletives at the firing squad. There was about five or six uh, uh, very small court. um. But Nikolai defiantly sang the socialist left-wing anthem, the Internationale. This is a socialist uh, song. Um, I'll read to you a few of the lyrics. Uh, I want you to see the ideology behind these things. Um, See, socialism, in the classical sense, was always a vehicle to communism. That was the goal, that was the ideal goal. It was an economic principle to get you to communism. I wish young people would understand this more today as they walk around with their Che Guevara and their Corbinista t-shirts with no real understanding of the atrocities and the history that took place. They're fooled because today the wording has changed. You don't call it communism, you call it collectivism or globalism. And you refer to things, socialism, as social justice. You think it's about taking care of the poor. That's not what social justice... Social justice was a term curated by Marxists as a masking term for the economic principles of communism and socialism. And we've completely fallen for it. Hook, line and sinker, because we we don't study history. That's not very Christmassy, that's for another time. Let me read to you a few words of this song, and you'll understand the worldview that goes along with these sort of movements. Stand up, damned of the earth. Stand up, prisoners of starvation. Reason thunders in its volcano. This is the eruption of the end. Of the past, let us make a clean slate. Enslaved masses, stand up, stand up. The world is about to change its foundation. We are nothing. Let us all be all. This is the final struggle. Let us group together, and tomorrow the Internationale will be the human race. Listen to this verse. There are no supreme saviours. Neither God, nor Caesar, nor Tribune. We must save ourselves. Decree the common salvation so that the thief expires, so that the spirit be pulled from its prison. Let us fan our forge ourselves, strike the iron while it is hot. And obviously there's a huge background 
with, with the print, you know, the philosophy of Marx and communism and the bourgeoisie and the proletariat going on here. But one of the things that was implicit in these movements, you can read it in the Humanist Manifesto, you can read it in the Communist Manifesto, uh, and the various more modern versions, the, the third version of the, the Humanist Manifesto now. Atheism is implicit in these things. They are very anti-Christian in their movements. There are no supreme saviours, neither God nor Caesar, nor tribune. This is a song of the damned. This man fought against religion, he fought against Christ, he rejected these things. This is a song of a world without Christ. It really doesn't have much hope. Um, the communist experiment failed, but yet it's, the ideology is still very alive and well today. But contrast that with what we have. The angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people all the people for today in the city of David there is a saviour who is Christ the Lord now if I can just have I'll just keep you five more minutes just to find I want to just finish off by looking at the impact of the Christ child the things that we've looked at and the impact that he has on people's lives over history the modern revival of Christmas happened really in Victorian times Okay, before Victorian times, Christmas was kind of in decline. It had been banned by the Puritans and it was not really celebrated too much. One of the people credited with reviving Christmas was Charles Dickens. Okay, his famous book, A Christmas Carol. Dickens said that Christmas is a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of other people... Um, as if they really were fellow passengers to the graves and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. Dickens' Christmas Carol, you all know the book, I'm assuming, Ebenezer Scrooge, Bob Cratchit, and, and, and the story. There's one scene in that play where Scrooge is counting money in his office and two Christians, they're not identified as Christians, but if you understand the history and the context, they definitely are. And if you've seen the new animation, with kind of the Jim Carrey-esque one, if you know the one I mean, the man, they have this scene, and the guy looks very like Spur- Charles Spurgeon, the man that comes into his eye. I don't know if they've done it purposely, but Spurgeon was a contemporary. This is, this is Spurgeon's time. But he, anyway, he wanders into the office, and they're asking, basically, they're collecting money for the, for the poor. They're doing charitable work. And they explain this, and then they say, I'll just read a bit of it to you. What shall I put you down for? And Scrooge says, nothing. He says, oh, you wish to be anonymous. And he says, I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, this is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry either. I help to support the prisons and the workhouses. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, they had better do it, and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge, you know the story. He's he's a great character, Scrooge. Now, this was Dickens' London. Okay, Dickens' London, you're talking like... 1840, that kind of time, it's 19th century. It was a horrible place. Infant mortality was so high that one-third of all children would die before reaching five years of age. Okay, one-third of all children were reaching before five. Children had no rights. Most of them were orphaned and destitute. Um, most of them were forced to work in the mines, go up chimneys, you know, all these sorts of things. Boys as young as four would often be climbing boys. Many of them would die in the chimneys. Overcrowding of London led to the slums, You'd have, you know, the rookeries, as they called them. You'd have so many people, like 15, 20 people in one room. Um, open sewer running through the streets, no sanitation, no lights, no running water. Um, everything ended up finding its way to the Thames. 
Okay, so much so that by 1854, which was dubbed by Parliament as the Great Stink, the Thames was such a rotting cesspit of sewage that you could smell it through the entire city of London. Rich people used to spray their curtains with perfume when they had to open the windows in order to try and make sure their house didn't smell of raw sewage. This was, Dick- this was London at the time. It's not very, not very romantic. As Scrooge, Scrooge alluded to there, he supports the workhouses. Dickens hated the workhouses. He wrote his novel Oliver Twist to champion the rights of, of the, the young people who got sent to these workhouses. The new poor law of 1834 basically established the workhouse system. Workhouses were basically prisons, but they were not said to be prisons. They were basically, if you were homeless, young children, or you would get sent to a workhouse and you would basically be forced to work until you die there, but you would be given meagre shelter and rations. So that was, the, that was the choice. You starve and freeze on the streets or you live in a workhouse. Many people would rather die on the streets. If, you, if you've read the novel Oliver Twist, he's in the workhouse and, he, and you, you know everything that happens to him in the workhouse. That, that's why Charles Dickens, he was a kind of social activist of his time. He wrote that book. Now, it was primarily evangelicals that led the reforms at this time in these era. One particular guy, this is my favourite evangelical reformer, a guy called Lord Anthony Ashley Cooper, better known as Lord Shaftesbury. Okay, he was a defender of the poor, and he often, you know, he, he did, in one of his famous parliamentary speeches, he shocked the Parliament of London when he claimed that there were 30,000 naked, filthy, roaming, lawless, deserted children living on the streets of London, and most of them wouldn't live into their teens. He managed to pass laws which prohibited women and children working in the mines. He reduced the length of the working day for the factory boys. He outlawed young boys from being used in chimney sweeps. He led reforms in mental health institutions. He secured rights for drinking water and safe housing for the poor. Uh, Got rid of child prostitution in many areas of London. Closed down a lot of the gin, gin shops. Um, so we have no idea what really London was like before the, in, the, in these times. But Shaftesbury says in his autobiography, he was motivated by his Christian faith. There's no doubt about it. He was involved with the Church Missionary Society, British and Forest Bible Society, Religious Tract Society. Um, he described himself as an evangelical of evangelicals. He, he was a, a great example of a Christian reformer. He, when he died... He didn't get buried in Westminster Abbey, but he had a funeral procession. They wanted to honour him from Westminster Abbey. And one thing, he was obviously a lord, so there were hundreds of dignitaries that came, as you usually would expect for someone of his stature. But what was shocking about this event is that outside of Westminster and along the funeral car procession, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of the working-class people as it's listed in one source, all the mill workers, the bootback boys, the factory hands, the ragged school children, and all of these people, and also representatives from one of the 160 charities that he founded himself in his short lifetime, came to pay respects, to catch a glimpse of what they would call their lord, their earl, basically, um, on his way, on his funeral procession. He was loved by the people. One of my prized possessions of my Christian history is a letter from Lord Shaftesbury, not to me, obviously, but... Uh, this is like a signed letter from Lord Shaftesbury engaging in, I can't, I can only read a little bit of it, but you can see his signature and his name very clearly. When he died, he was a friend of C.H. Spurgeon. He, like, they were good friends, they, they went to each other's parties and, and things like that. When he died, Spurgeon preached a sermon, a eulogy, and he, I'll read it to you. He said this about Lord Shaftesbury. He said, during the past week, the Church of God 
and the world at large, the world at large have sustained a very serious loss. In the taking home to himself by our gracious Lord of the Earl of Shaftesbury, we have, in my judgment, lost the best man of the age. He was a man most true in his personal piety, as I know from having enjoyed his private friendship, a man most firm in his faith in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, a man intensely active in the cause of God and truth. We shall not know for many a year how much we miss in missing him, how great an anchor he was to the drifting generation, and how a great stimulus he was to every movement for benefit of the poor. Both man and beast may unite in mourning him, He was the friend of every living thing. He lived for the oppressed. He lived for London. He lived for the nation. He lived still more for God. He has finished his course. And though we do not lay him to sleep in the grave with the sorrow of those that have no hope, yet we cannot but mourn that a great man and a prince has fallen this day in Israel. I love that. Spurgeon's got away with words though, hasn't he? A great man and a prince has fallen this day in Israel. But you read Shaftbury, everything he did He did because he had a devotion to that child that was born in a major 2,000 years ago. He would have been one of these people that come, came and adored him, bowed down and gave him his gifts. He gave everything he had. He used all his wealth, all his political contacts for the furtherance of the gospel in these areas and for the plight of the poor. In light of this, the one we worship on Christmas Day May it be our aim to live a life worthy of such a eulogy that God would say to us, good and faithful servants, because for today, in the city of David, there is born for you a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truths that we learn when we look at your birth, we look at your scriptures and we learn everything that you've done. We're just overwhelmed, Lord. We're filled with amazement and wonder. We pray now as we just, all of us go out, we finish our weeks and we prepare for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, for whatever we're doing, that you would help us to make you the centre of it, Lord. In amongst all the busyness, we would just have that time where we could give thanks to you and focus on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.